Okay, so thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Scholar Homies podcast, The Game is to be Told, Not Sold, Conversations with the Soul. I am here with Dr. Juan Santos. I am so excited to have you uh, share this space with you this morning. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, one of the greatest joys in my life to give back to the community and to build community and kinship across, you know, different uh, spheres that we come from. So gracias for the invitation. Of course, of course. So for those listening, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like who is Dr. Santos? Let's see. I am, my personhood is comprised of the, you know, of an embodiment that involves being um, a formerly undocumented person, a working class Porsche, first generation scholar, uh, grew up in the neighborhood of Boyle Heights. I'm, uh, you know, the oldest brother in my family. Uh, my story goes back to the time when we were forced to migrate to the United States because um, my brother passed away. My brother Juan Carlos in Mexico. And to bury my brother, we, my family made the decision to migrate to the U.S. so we could at least raise monies to purchase a proper burial ground for my carnal. So we came to the United States and through that process, you know, my father was able to you know, make ends meet and take care of that calling to pay for that burial ground. And um, we ended up staying here in the United States. But, you know, it hasn't been an easy experience being in the U.S. as an undocumented person, you know, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, there were people that were born here, but they were your people, but yet they would still call you derogatory terms when they had an opportunity. So sometimes they'd be called a wetback. And Hurtful as it is now, back then I thought it was my nickname, so I didn't even question it. But, you know, as a, com as a community, I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed of. I'm proud to be from my neighborhood. I'm proud to, you know, be part of this amazing collective of elders and youngsters that taught me a lot about life. The schools were not the best. I went through a school where Teachers were more concerned about getting their loans forgiven or, you know, making money at our expense and castigating us like correctional officers, but they weren't really interested in us, especially the white teachers. Uh, some teachers that I had were memorable. They loved us. They genuinely gave us cariño, unconditional love. Those were the teachers we wanted. In fact, every time they would give you a teacher assigned to you for the next academic year, you always wish it was that one teacher. And then you'll end up with that one teacher is like, oh my goodness, the reputation is bad. And sure enough, you were the one that was deterred from going on field trips. You were the one that was given standards, write this statement over and over a hundred times, a thousand times as a punishment. So I, I just saw school as a space of punishment and not a space of nurturance. Uh, the community I lived in was very working class, very Mexicano, Mexicana, Mexicanex. And um, it, it was a trip because in our communities, a lot of us were struggling. A lot of us were poor, but we didn't know we were poor. It's until we left those communities and started to see how other people live. You're like, holy shit, these people live by the ocean. Oh my goodness, these people have nice cars. What? Someone cleans your house? Like, that's the kind of shit we were used to hearing that people hire others to do the, the work. 
So growing up in, in Boyle Heights was a trip because as I started to age, I started to see that in the neighborhoods, we were super surveilled, super criminalized by the cops. They were not there to help us. At, at some point as a kid, I was like, oh, cool. They're giving us uh, baseball cards, Fernando Valenzuela cards. We're like, hell yeah. I want to I want, I want to greet a cop. I want a free baseball card. And that turned into uh, a very adversarial relationship. The moment that funding for those baseball cards stopped and they became agents of criminalization. They kept us in our place. They reminded us of where we stood in the totem pole of society. And so for a lot of us, we started to see that it was an us versus them model in our everydayness because not only were we being patrolled or policed by law enforcement, but also community members, uh, you know, people that like, for example, the, 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 the merchants in the community also surveilled us. They criminalized us. They were the ones that would make us put our bags outside of the store while we go and shop or they only let two people in the store at a time. And so like all of a sudden you're in an environment that is criminalized in a wraparound system that is, it, it's tremendous for a lot of us. So who am I? I'm a person that struggled a lot. I'm a person that acknowledges that the system uh, is conducive to the needs of the ruling class. And, and I wasn't part of that. I did recognize my advantages though growing up as a huero. I'm a light-skinned Mexicano, so I have that advantage, the skin color hierarchy. But I went through being undocumented. I went through being formally incarcerated. I went through a lot of stuff that always reminded me where my place was in society. And so as a youngster, I didn't value who I was. I didn't understand the worth. And now that I'm getting older, I'm like, damn, I had all this value. Fuck, I had a lot of value. You know, I had a lot of cultural wealth, and I was ashamed of it when that was actually my source of pride, my source of joy. So as I, I you know, and 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 I, I even going back to my, my adolescent years when Proposition 187 was on fire and, you know, they were anti-immigrant, they meaning people that were not allies you know, Pete Wilson was promoting ideas about our gente, and I started to feel this sense of like shame at some point. But one day I'm with my friends and we're like fixing our bikes on the street and we could hear like these loud horns, like, you know, like in soccer games, they have those long horns they could hear for miles. I heard those and I was like, wait, what's today? What's happening? I thought like they only do this on like Christmas or they do this on like particular holidays but no it was the day where i could hear those horns i'm like hey guys let's go on our bikes so we went on our bikes you know cruising down the neighborhood to the place where we heard the sound and it took us to this area called los cinco puntos that's the five points right there by el pino in east l.a in the border of east l.a boyle heights and we're there and we see all these people holding signs they're like you know addressing issues about anti-immigration, like we need to kick out uh, Pete Wilson, we need to like change the system, it's unfair, we're immigrants, we're unafraid, like I was blown away that people actually were questioning stuff that I kept hearing on TV and, and you know, on, on the news and I was like enamored, I was like, fuck, this is beautiful and I remember I was with my, my, my good friend and we were like, fuck, like everybody's taking up on a long march and I kept asking, where are y'all going? They're like, or marching to downtown, like downtown. 
we were so excited. We followed the crowd all the way to downtown with our bikes. And it was really cool because people were chanting. People were showing oppositional consciousness, contentious politics. And it just blew my mind. It reminded me of like, fuck, man, I'm proud to be Rasa. Damn, this is exciting. I want to be part of this. And I remember just as a youngster, just feeling so motivated and empowered that for the first time in my life, I felt that true feeling of what I call today in like catch vibes, you know, like I felt like, wow, we belong to each other. We're, we're part of this mobilization where we're like, we don't have to stay neutral, passive. We don't have to like stay quiet about this. Now we're empowered. Now we could say something, do something and transform it. So as a youngster, you know, I, I just felt so empowered that. It made me see life differently. It made me see that I am no longer going to be silenced. I'm not going to allow anybody to disrespect my community, my family. You know, like over the years, I would just see that all the time. So who am I? I'm a, a guy that's stuck in a world in between spaces. Sometimes, you know, I, I just wonder, like, how the hell did I get here? You know, like, I, I sometimes I'm in disbelief that I got a doctorate. I got so much under my belt that I never, as a kid, I'd never imagined I would get there. I always thought I would be a blue collar worker working, you know, at a factory alongside my dad, or, you know, maybe I I, I would hear my friends talk about going to prison. So I thought that was poss a possible pipeline for me. And so now that I'm older, I'm thinking, damn, like this was no accident. This was a byproduct of my village, every single person that came in contact with my life that really saw something in me where I couldn't even see it myself. So the nurturance, the love, the unconditional love, the, the sponsorship, the reminder of my worth, man, all these people are what I call OGs. And I don't mean it like original gangster. I mean it like opportunity givers. Every single person that could literally imagine my struggle and imagine my own liberation, who put themselves in my shoes and imagine what kind of life circumstances I went through are the people that I indebted to. They're the, they're the people, the community that reminded me of what I need to do. So here I am doing the stuff that those people, the amazing elders, friends, some alive, some no longer with us, that still made an impact in my life. So that's who I am. I am a byproduct of the community. Thank you so much for sharing. That was so beautiful to just hear how you resonated and how you saw activism, right, as in an early age. And you bring up Proposition 187. And for those of you not in California, I would Highly recommend checking that out, right? Google Prop 187 in California, because that was a time I, that was a time that I remember as a child too. And that was the first time where I walked out of my school. I'll never forget in Nestor, <clears throat> which was like a small community in San Diego, California, um, like South, South San Diego. <clears throat> and I remember, you know, hearing the things on the news kind of similar to you. And then hearing that they were going to walk out and I was in middle school and I was scared, right? Because you, you kind of dare don't do, um, go against the grain, so to speak. But I was also, I also felt the tension, the, the political tension that was happening in the state and that was happening in the community. So 
we're very close to San Jacinto, right? Like Nestor and it's, it's borderline um, communities, border communities. And so that was a different time, you know, California in the 90s with Pete Wilson as governor. And so I, I clearly remember those, those days where there were several walkouts and several protests in the area. Um, and so thank you for sharing that because that, that's, that's a, a, a clear indicator for my life too of, of kind of like activism and you know, what does that mean? And, and kind of being awakened or kind of just feeling like that we can be empowered, right? Like we are being told these derogatory terms and, and things as we're growing up, but that no, that we, we can act, you know, advocate for ourselves. I wanna ask you, in a, in a previous, we've, you know, we've had meetings prior to this, when there was some, a term that you mentioned that I, I really, um, I was like, wow, I'm like, can you tell me more about this? And the conversation was about the difference, like what is a hood scholar? Like some of being from the hood um, and the phrase that we, we see in higher ed a lot is like, I'm, you know, from, from the hood to being hooded, right? Um, and you mentioned this term collateral impact. And I had never really heard of it before, but I thought it was so powerful. Could you help explain and unpack what collateral impact is? So when I'm talking about the concept of in la catch that we belong to each other and kind of like how everybody is an essential figure in our lives and all that, even though we have communities that are soaked with love, we also have people that are impacted by the structures or the impediments that we have to confront in our everydayness. So let's say, for example, you become incarcerated. People just think it's just an individual incarceration when in fact it's a community-based incarceration because you are taken away from a family that needs you, whether it's economically, socio-emotionally, you know, by you being absent, it creates depression in the family, it reaffirms trauma. Then the family has to go visit you and they got to also be re-traumatized by being searched as if they committed a crime like their suspect. So the collateral consequences that I talk about are the ways the laws, the ways education limit people's opportunity chances. Uh, I'm looking at the ways that other people outside of yourself are impacted, whether it's um, when you graduate from college. Fuck, when you graduate, it's a big deal for a lot of first generations, especially your parents. If your parents never went through academia, they're very proud of you regardless because you went beyond what they accomplished. And I remember coming home from school and my mother would always ask me, Mijo, how was school? And she would sit there attentively and want me to tell her like, this is what we did. This is what we explored. And I could see my mother was always like vicariously living through those experiences. Like, damn, I wish I could have gone to school. You have an opportunity that I didn't. So the collateral consequence there was that I was able to go to school, but my mother could envision and imagine what it's like to be a student in the U.S. And so just watching myself graduate, you know, like I tell a story of graduation day, how my mother would get up in the morning, make chorizo, you know, and like all kinds of good breakfast food. And you're thinking, why is she up so early? And then you come to realize, damn, my mother wants to be at the graduation ceremony first and everybody else. And it doesn't dawn on you why it's so important to your parents, but as a first-generation undocumented uh, student, you know, uh, they meant the whole thing, because I remember all the time, like, 
We came to this country to bury my brother, but never did my parents imagine that they also came to this country to empower us and to give us a different life. And so for me to graduate, it speaks volumes to my parents because the collateral consequence here is that everybody that didn't imagine that one of us, the Santos, are going to get a, a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate is actually happening. You know, so every time my mother would get up in the morning for every single graduation, it was a source of pride because it was revolutionary because it was, in fact, a testament that we were a byproduct of our own liberation. And it's not so much that it's about meritocracy. It's about we did this for the community. We did this to honor our families, to honor everybody that never believed in us, to decolonize and to decolumbicize our experiences because we're in a world where we're constantly being cross-examined demonized, you know, saturated with lies about who we are, that we're the bad hombres and all that bullshit that is instilled in others. So for me, we got to reverse the collateral consequences of that poisonous pedagogy that's out there, the poisonous teachings that the Telalive vision instills in a lot of our audience members, that some of our books mislead our communities, you know, about who we are. That's why I took a lot of value with Howard Zinn's book, you know, People's History of the United States to like even that other book, The Lies My Teacher Told Me, because they remind you like, you know, there's always that master narrative that we always have to challenge. You always have to contest. We always have to go against the grain because that collateral consequence of like being put in a box and being told these are your life chances and you come from a culturally deficit community is what we have to challenge. We are people of worth. We're people of value. We're people that should be proud of who we are in that. You know, when we're together and we form an alliance and uh, this co these coalitions, we could defeat those demonizing tactics, right? So as a community, we could stand up and say, you know what? There are collateral consequences to ideas that demonize, but there are also collateral consequences when you become the instrument for hope and inspiration because you're doing this not for yourself, but for the love of the larger community. So for me, you know, collateral consequences could be, it's a binary opposition because on, on some level, it's a byproduct of how society puts you in a box, but then on the other side of it, or the flip side is that, you know, you are part of this, this, this tension, this, this movement where you're promoting your own emancipation for the community. It's like, you know, you're creating intergenerational continuity so that people do not have to go through the shit that you had to go through. Like when people think, oh, you went to grad school. That's great, man. Fuck. Like you're this, this, and that. Man, it was never about me. There were times when I felt like quitting. There were times when I felt like I couldn't do it. I, the imposter syndrome was in my face. There were times when I'd be like walked around campus with a group of other students of color and we're being paraded like zoo animals. Like, look, look at our grad students. And we're all these like people of color, right? And you're always told that, you know, your existence is tokenized, your existence is glamorized, but never do they tell you, you belong here, you are necessary, we need you, you know, and one of the things that I hated about being a grad student, talking about collateral consequences, when the, the Latino topic came up, right, they didn't use that next yet, yet, but the Latino topic is up, let's look at the one person that's the next person, they all turn to me like I'm the spokesperson, I'm like, Man, my pronouns are he, him, his, and el. How do you expect me to speak for everybody in the community? I cannot speak for women. I'm an ally, but I can't speak for women. I cannot speak for my LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters. I can, but yet you're gonna turn to me and ask of me to do something impossible? 
This is what's wrong with the world that we live in and talk about collateral consequences where people just only want to hear a snapshot of the community. They don't want to hear the whole, the total sum. They don't want to hear of how badass our people are, how awesome we are, what we contribute to academia is important and significant. No, they just want a snapshot. That's enough. Let's move on to these other boutique topics, you know, and it just gets annoying. And you start to realize, damn, this is exactly how we are. We, they love to see us do the work, but they don't want to see us in leadership and empowerment positions. So that's why I brought up collateral consequences, because on some level, we're affected by the maltreatment, the social maltreatment that we go through. But we also have to acknowledge that we have the abilities to transform um, collateral consequences to positive outcomes. Definitely. And I just want to share, you know, our work is, you know, through an anti-deficit lens, right? And I want to reframe and refocus. And I, I briefly shared offline, but I was in a guest lecture last week with the, with the faculty, and he kept bringing up, right, in pris the, the prison gangs, he kept bringing up gang culture. And he wanted an answer. And I was like, you're not hearing me. You're not hearing what I'm saying, because I'm talking about reform. I'm talking about having an anti-deficit lens. I'm talking about the language that you're using because they were using deficit language and I would, I would correct and like, you know, rephrase it. And at some point I just sat back, like he's not listening to me because in his mind, he already has the picture painted, right? And so he wants me to, to talk on it so that he could move on. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to take the bait because that's not what I'm here to discuss. Um, and it's like you said, like being tokenized, right? Like, okay, we have, you know, the, the Latinx or that person in the room, like, can you speak to all of this? And it's like, no, that's, that's not, that's not my space to speak to. Um, and you should honor that, right? You should honor that. Um, and I, I'm thinking a lot about, thank you so much for, for your response. It was, it's definitely, I think I have so many thoughts. Um, personal thoughts and, and then professional thoughts. I, I think a lot about my dissertation that I use Bronfenbrenner's ecological systems theory as one of the theories, but I'm saying how a formerly incarcerated individual moves through these systems, right? And how not only are they impacted, but their family is impacted. And then that community and then society is impacted through their incarceration and how that moves through up and down. And I, th I think that's where I'm trying to humanize in higher education, like you have to realize not only is one person being incarcerated, that doesn't just impact them, it impacts the entire family unit for so many different reasons, economic, social, psychological, like there's so many factors into that, that we're not seeing that our community is, is so greatly hurt and impacted. Um, and I, I think it's a matter of normalizing, right? Like there's some, a, another talk I did this week with, you know, if we look at the mass incarceration rates, they're in the millions. So it's only obvious that we are, if we're not formally incarcerated, that we are carceral impacted ourselves. We know somebody that's, it's just, it's just bound to be because those are what the numbers are. They're so high. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on that, on just normalizing, I guess, normalizing, having empathy for, for a community that has been harmed you know, uh, a lot of people like to glamorize the carceral experience of folk and, redu and they also love to reduce our communities to criminality. 
So it's so easy to only think that that's how we, we're susceptible to. And it's so annoying to be put in that box because a lot of people are engaged in that racial project without thinking about what are other aspects that impact the community? Because I look at immigration. I look at the way some people are disproportionately demonized for not just who they are as individuals, but their cultural citizenship. And so when I'm thinking about being reduced and being put in a box, I find it necessary for us to think about what are other things that we go through that we never address systemically, right? And so, yes, our, our community is being mass incarcerated, yes. I mean, I was part of a project called um, Bad Hombres. And, um, you know, it's a documentary you can find on YouTube. And it's it's, it's a documentary that highlights how, you know, it's, it's a group of people when looking at Latinxers that it's a group of people that are hardly discussed. And, you know, we're always reduced to this idea that all we could ever amount to is being part of the cultural state. But... I think that um, we have to really start thinking beyond the, that scope, right? Because will we be when we talk about normalizing mass incarceration in our communities, yeah, it does happen, it, definitely. But we're not talking about other aspects that talk about the beauty of our communities. We're not talking about like you and I. Why is it that many of us are, you know, navigating these academic pipelines and thriving? Now, even though I'm telling you it's, it's we have doctorates and all this, it might seem like, cool, that's awesome, man. Good for you. But the fact of the matter is that we go through a lot of shit to even get there. To even exist, coexist in higher ed as educators with doctorates, we're always being surveilled. We're always being questioned. If we do our research, oh, you're losing your objectivity. Oh, you're going native. Why can't you study other stuff? And when white people study our communities, oh, they're called rogue. Oh, my God, look at them. And all of a sudden, they're like amazing scholars. And we don't talk about how they're engaged in colonizing our, our communities, speaking for our communities, and denying us access to spaces. They never, you know, we're never allowed to talk about how painful and hurtful it is to have committees looking at our work and telling us whether we're good enough to get tenure. I mean, that is, that's oppression. That's policing. And, and even though when you're a grad student, you're thinking, damn, like, I want to be a professor. And you think that's all there is to it. Hell no. The moment you get in there, they remind you, you got to do service. And you're like, what? No one told me about that. Oh, yeah, you got to do research. If you don't publish, you perish. And you're being told all oh, about all these things. It's like another prison system. You want to parole, you got to definitely follow these structural impediments. And, and also, you got to follow these structural expectations to be successful. So as you're going through the tenure process, you're always questioning yourself, damn, am I good enough? A student writes a bad evaluation, they expect you to talk about that one evaluation when other evaluations are stronger? Like, uh, why is that important? That one student is, is, is not happy with you? Okay, why do I have to give that person the center of my discussion? And they always did that to me and I, it would get to me. Uh, another thing, you know, like the police, campus police, talking about criminalization. I couldn't be on campus while being harassed my first year. I always questioned, excuse me, sir, where are you from? And you're thinking, what the F? I, I'm here, I'm a professor, I'm a, a tenure track professor and I'm being criminalized by police officers on campus. 
And you're thinking, damn, okay, let me give them the, the answer that they're looking for. Oh, so you're asking me what gang I'm from. Oh, okay, well, you, you start telling them. You, you see those buildings that are right in front of you? I work with a certain number of faculty members. There's 13 of us. We're in the sociology department. And by definition, I guess we are gang members. And then they're like so shocked with your response that they leave you alone. But think about this. I'm not the only one that gets surveilled. There was uh, at San Francisco State, Antwi Occam, uh, at Cal State Long Beach, um, you know, Stephen Osuna. Uh, All these faculty members are also suspect when we're like professors, always being questioned, always being asked, why are we there? We're not even normalized. We're seen as, you know, as an impediment to the campus when like, some of our campus memorialize racist people, like at my school, they memorialize a racist that was anti-immigrant who said that if you look like you're from Oaxaca, you need to carry ID cards if you go to our schools. But yet we have a building named after this person, but when our existence is there, it's a threat. When people of color, faculty of color are there, instead of celebrating us, we're suspect, but yet we'll memorialize racist people. Come on now, like let's talk about this. What does this really mean? So while people are busy asking us about prisons and they watch the American me like, ooh, watch out Popeye or something like, you know, uh, they, they watch a prison movie like Blood In, Blood Out. They think they understand our communities. Man, there's more complexities to our communities than just reducing us to a prison, right? Criminality. And that's what happens all the time. I think it was a reminder that they feel that we don't belong in these spaces. So when you say campus police, my partner, you know, for the last year would drop me off at work and immediately get pulled over by campus police immediately. And it, it, this is the same thing, poor guy, like in, in California, I couldn't tell you how many times he would get pulled over by Chula Vista PD all the time, all the time, profiled, never ticketed, but always profiled. We come here, immediately pulled over by campus police. And finally, you know, I, I like to like not, share my positionality you know I, I'm on campus but I'm, I'm never like oh I'm a professor or anything like that you know but he he goes no I tell him I tell him you're pulling me over I just dropped off my wife who's a faculty member here what do you think I'm here to do I'm I'm, I'm dropping off I, I'm, I'm passing through and it doesn't even matter I'm like why should you even have to give that response to them you know finally on the, like the third time that he was pulled over I was like okay this is getting out of hand we have to go have a talk with you know with campus police but it's it's even that I think of like, a lot of my work is Latino men because of his experience and because of the experiences of my family members that I've seen them go through. Like you said, like, you, you know, I am passing, they're not going to stop me for probably anything, but that doesn't mean that the men in my life are not going to be pulled over and harassed by police or campus police. Um, because it's just a reminder, right, that we don't belong, according to them, in, in these spaces. And just, to, I just want to add another part to this. So it's not just the police. You got students that are also anti. And I'm going to tell you a little quick example. Like my second year at my university, there was a group of fraternity and sorority members that went in there and they took the class as a group. And they went from being like, you know, funny to not liking the ideas that I would talk about. And all of a sudden, they started to form a coalition. And it was teaching a sociology of gangs class, right? It was about the structure of gangs. They thought it was going to be like, let's glamorize the gang experience and stuff like that. And it was never like that. Um, what I did is I just provided a critical analysis by looking at different structural or, or 
theoretical frameworks to make sense of this topic, but they were not having it. And I'm telling you, they were so anti that they threw a theme party. It was called the Chola, the Chola party, the Cholo party. And they and the only way to gain access to this party was you had to dress like a gang member. And so when the word got back to me from some of my students and we're looking at topics that I use in my syllabus to promote that party, like I had a chapter we called The Struggle is Real. Yeah. And they, they they actually put that quote on their flyer for the party. And when they called out, they got called out for doing this because we're like saying, while some of you are just saying it was just a costume party, it was not, not, not an offensive party. To some of us, it was deeply offensive because there are draconian laws in the community, such as gang injunction laws that attack our community just because a police officer imagines you're a gang member or because they think that you are, you know, capable of committing a crime. And so all of a sudden, they, they threw this party without thinking, damn, what are the social ramifications that the community have to deal with, especially when looking at gangs? So as a Chicano scholar, I was like, damn, like this is crazy. And to make things worse, while I'm being preemptively struck by this traditional white fraternity and sorority, uh, you know, all of a sudden I'm being investigated, you know, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. I did nothing except teach. I'm a man of color just teaching a damn class. And next thing you know, you have people just asking, like administrators that will stand outside the door, asking students questions about me. And I'm thinking, if I was a white professor, this would have never happened. Never. But because of the messenger and because of my embodiment and because of what I represent, oh, people went after me for sure. But, oh, no one cared about what I was going through. They cared about the poor sororities who were crying because they were being questioned about why they threw the party. And then like, had we known, we would have never done this. And I'm like, you've been taking classes in our major for a while. You should have already known. But because of their embodiment of who they represent, they got a pass. Uh -huh. And this continues. I mean, your school had the, you know, it wasn't your school. Uh, at UC San Diego, they had the, the Compton Cookout. Compton Cookout. You know, other schools, they have the border party. We have to jump the fence to get in or crawl under the fence. Like, come on. Like, we are not a costume. I remember that party at, at your institution because I did a, a presentation in my master's about racialized theme parties. And I vividly remember that. I also vividly remember, I'll say the president's no longer there, but they were also, um, I think they also held like a, a, a racialized theme party as well that was separate from, from that Greek one. But I remember that and I, some people don't understand why that is so offensive. And it's because look, if you can take off this costume and go home and be safe, that's why it's, it's offensive, right? Because there's people that live these realities and are, their lives are, are daily threatened, right? Or, or it's it just, it's offensive. Like, I don't know, I have oh my gosh, I, I remember that. And I, I can't believe they got away with it. I mean, yeah. part of it's like, yeah, you can, because the system is set up that way. Um, and that they still happen, right? I remember, Yale had an incident last this not this October but last year I mean it's like it's still happening and we're, we're definitely still seeing them but yeah there's there's a, a huge list of campuses that have gone through gone through this here in Texas I know UT Austin had one as well um with their law school like their law students held this um a, a racial life theme party so it's it's 
Yeah, that's wow. I can't believe. I'm sorry that that happened to you. No, no, la, la neta. I mean, it's very offensive, and not just yeah. that, but then you you start to see pictures of like the former president of the university yeah. dressed in a sombrero yeah. with a poncho, and you're thinking, ain't that some shit? They claim to be liberal, progressive, and all this shit, and yet the the people that are considered the leadership of the campus happen to do this, and and then you know they they expect us to give them a pass. But if I were to do that, dress like that, and mock somebody, I would have been in trouble because of who I am to begin with. Yeah. So what I'm saying here is that we're always reduced, we're always criminalized, even when you're in, in the ivory tower thinking, yeah, I made it. You, you haven't. Because yeah. you're still being scrutinized. You're still being put in a box. You're still being, like, people will accuse you of, like, taking advantage of other people by not doing your work in committees. When you, in fact, do a lot, you just don't talk about what you do. But some people love it, love to scrutinize you. You know, like, La Neta, like, it's been a tough voyage to be here. Like, when people say, how did you do it? I'm like, if you could survive prison, you could survive universities. And like, how so? I'm like, at a prison, you have a warden. At the university, you have a president. Same people. Same bureaucratic leadership. You have warden. I mean, you have you have correctional officers and you got professors. You got inmates, you have students. You have inmates broken up into subcultures. You have that with students. It's the same experience, except one promotes rewards, the other one promotes punishment. Mm -hmm. But if you could understand how those things work, you're able to navigate these two total institutions and you know make sense of them. Is it easy? They're both worlds are not easy. They're both difficult. They both have collateral consequences. They both do. So uh, as, as I think about, damn, like when people put us in a box of privilege, it's not easy. No. You're still considered a second class, third class citizen. I mean, one thing is being a person of color in academia. The other thing is when you come from a working class background, you're also put it, it's like a different experience because you have colleagues that come from wealth. I know colleagues that the moment they got hired, not in my department, but others that they had so much money that they could buy a house. When some of us are struggling to make our rent, you're, you have to pay your student loans, and you're like, holy smoke, like, how am I going to make things work here? You're even thinking, maybe I need to find another career. And so all I'm saying is that it's not as easy. You're always trying to fit in this world that is adversarial, that is antagonistic. Even people will think that you use their programs to experience mobility. And the thing is, you know, that's a, that's a game. Some people, you know, everybody wants to experience mobility on some level, but I do it for the community. Other people, I don't know what their ulterior motives are, but when you're doing this, you're doing it for this in la catch love you have because you're intending to create a platform to bring other people alongside you. You're trying to help people in your community who never envisioned their value to see that. You're trying to empower voices that have always been invisible and unheard to, you know, be proud. And, and, and it's not that I want to speak for the community. It's just that I'm involved in a project where you go back and you're like, I'm a public sociologist, so I'm always about listening to what the community wants and using those public debates as sources of information and inspiration to the things that I want to do. So I'm I'm like you, like we're we're trying to carve out a niche, a space, but we're always being put in a box. And that's the thing that I always think about Gloria Zaldua's work, right? And you know, we live in a world where we're constantly being told that 
we don't have anything beyond what people imagine us. We are, and the way I see it is I'm, I'm, I'm an intersectional man. I'm a person that has to navigate all these institutions and put up with their microaggressions and their macroaggressions and still thrive, you know? And there's times when you're in a hostile space, like you are like in the streets, where you can't wait to go home to just have your own little refuge and just kind of like be yourself again. Because on some level, you have to wear a white mask and a brown mask to exist in these places. And I, I don't want to paint a rosy picture for the audience that's listening. Maybe some of you have it easy, but some of us have a hard time fitting in. Some of us fight to fit in. We struggle. And um, and, and I'm just talking from a privileged standpoint I'm in because I know women that go through far more worse experiences, the LGBTQ plus folk that, you know, they're scrutinized a lot different. Like I've, I've heard students scrutinize faculty members because they're not dressed women like, and you're like, what the hell? Like you're, I, I thought you were, you measure people based on like their, 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 their productivity, their performance, working with students. Oh, well, you're measuring them based on how they're dressed. What kind of crap is that? Like, and I know I that I never gotten critique for that, but I've seen my female colleagues get attacked on dressing a certain way or speaking a certain way. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you. I really, really resonate. There was a, a colega a few weeks ago, and he says, "You know, what is tenure about? Is it about your research agenda and what you contribute to the field and the literature, or is it about how much bullshit you can endure?" And when he said that, it really hit hard because sometimes you're in these department meetings, in these sub, these uh, committee meetings, I, I feel like I'm scrapping for my life. Like, I feel like as soon as I leave, I need Olympia because what did I just go through? <laughs> and all I'm doing is advocating for students, right? And I'm like, well, what about the students? What about this? That's not equitable. And then it gets, when it gets thrown in your face, you're like, oh shit, like, they just like, that was a sucker punch. And it's like another blow, another blow. And then when you're the only one, two, you're, you know, like you said, like you're perceived, like I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit younger. I look a certain way. I'm not from here. I'm from California. Like it's like all these marks, right? Against me already. And then on top of that, I'm, I'm advocating for students, which is like what I thought we were supposed to be doing. Like, is, isn't that what, no, I, I learned that quickly. Like that's not the game that everybody plays. Um, oh. But you're you're right. It's uh, it's getting when you're on the other side of the curtain. I'm like shit. I really see now what my my mentors and what my femtors had to go through, right, to lift me through. And and then so I'm pulling back. I'm reaching my arm back out too, right. And I think that's what I I, I believe I shared this with you. Like I struggle with that. With there's there's one student I'm mentoring at a different institution. And he, he's teaching at an in-prison education program. And the first night that he taught, he was finished about 10 p.m. And he texts me like he's, he needs to debrief with somebody, right? And I said, absolutely. Like, let's, let's talk it out. What's, what do you need? And then I'm looking, you know, we, we have our interaction. And then at the end, I'm like, oh, according to my tenure university packet, I need to like document this, right? I, but at, at some point it's like, what do you do for the community and for what's right in that moment for that student who just needs you? And then, like you said, there's so much work that goes you know, unseen or unnoticed because in my heart, I don't feel right that I have to document this interaction that I have with the student, right? But 
I, I are my colleagues doing like they're not doing all I could I'll just say that they're not doing what I'm the work that I'm doing in the community mm -hmm. I, I know that hands down um, but then I'm getting told oh you need more community service I, I'm like did I share I don't think I've shared this with you there was one instance where I, I was asked to um engage in local community service such as a church I was like oh word really wow okay a church got it got it because trust me I'm in the community not the community that you want me to be in but I'm, I'm in the community and, and that I know what I'm giving back to the people who need me so it's, it's very you're right it's just that goes to maybe to my the next question right like the game is to be told not sold right what does that mean to you because it's a game, essentially. We are players in this game. Híjole, that's a, it's heavy. Mm -hmm. You know, the game is, it's always reinventing itself because the game that I think I was going through changes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm saying this kind of like with reservations, but I have to like, um, I've been, I love the work that I do because I love like what you said, the, 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 the game is to reproduce the university to, you know, carve out a niche within it. Okay, cool. But something that happens is that we get culturally taxed on many levels. Like we get taxed, we're the face and we get students that come to us all the time. And where do we go beyond the call of duty? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making this up like said you're like. And then when we, we, the game is you, 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 you do the goods to kind of get tenure and all that, pero la neta, they don't reward us for mentoring students on the side. They don't reward us for spending pocket money to help students go to a conference they don't recognize the worth that we have the, the way we love our communities and the way that other people do we just do it because it's natural we're part of this uh activistic circle or movement where we're just about giving our advantage away and the game is like you know just develop thick skin move forward do what you gotta do whatever but they never tell us that our lives are going to get threatened. Serio, I've been threatened, like, literally, social media posts that someone's going to kill me, uh, a former student. Or, and next thing you know, when this shit's going down, the university is not supporting me. They're like, you still got to come and teach in person, even though somebody said they're going to kill me. And you're thinking, damn, like, do you understand that if something goes down and I'm teaching there could be an active shooter situation or you know la neta, I'm not yeah. paranoid but when when you have it in front of you like some you have evidence this is how it is and you bring it up they don't give a shit about you you're expendable so when you ask that question fuck like the game's always been reinvented the game I thought I knew is always bringing about a whole new set of circumstances and challenges barriers laws and and people that do not understand who you are as a person because they think we're all the same and i'm like no if, if i was a white person saying hey someone's trying to kill me you better believe something's gonna happen 
they never talk about our, you know, they, they never really address what you're going through in a way where you understand that they really care about your wellness. No. I'm I'm just very skeptical of, of, of the system because even though we want to be part of it, we're being pushed on the margins and no one's trying to erase those margins. They're just affirming them, you know? Yeah. So this game. It, it, it's very unpredictable. Some people have it figured out, but I I still don't. I don't, unless I really don't. I don't know what it what what the future looks like. I don't even understand like what the future of academia is gonna be like. I think once we went virtual, people got an idea of like this is a direction where we should really be going. Mm -hmm. You know, the virtual university. I think that's gonna happen, but people are scared. Yeah. They're scared of like not making the universe the, the, the school the center of the universe. So I don't know if if, if that game's gonna be the same. All I know is that it's it's not it's not conducive to me. It's not conducive to people that are trying to be part of it. They'll tell you in theory that oh it's great. We create opportunity structures. We help people experience mobility. But they never tell you like who's gonna succeed in those processes. And they, who they have in mind in that equation, it's not us. Mm -hmm. That system is not about us. It's not. It's about the Anglo system. And, and I'm not trying to be ethnocentric or anti, but I'm just saying those are realities. We get Columbus a lot. We get colonized a lot. We get reminded of our worth all the time. But yet some people have a false consciousness and really buy into the meritocracy thing and say, oh, no. You just got to go with the flow, do really well, and you're going to prosper. But once you're in the mix, you start to notice that it's only conducive for people that are honorary white people, honorary middle class people, people that compromise who they are so they could be liked by the system. They are. Because the moment you become threatening to the system, you're an outsider. The moment you call out the president for the bullshit that's happening at school, you're an outsider. For me to um, be part of the circle of faculty members that called out the memorialization of Senator William Craven, who was anti-Latinx, it created a lot of enemies for me, especially for those that think that he, this individual was an amazing person for helping start the CSU San Marcos campus without thinking about, wait a minute, George Floyd's death doesn't mean shit to you? You know, Emmett Till's death doesn't mean it's like something's been going on in this country where we're not talking about racial injustice, but yet we want to memorialize people that were nativistic, xenophobic, racist, and all of a sudden I'm the bad person for calling it out. And in 94, when people did the same thing, they were also demonized and the newspapers did a good job in putting them in boxes and saying that these are uh, systemic uh, Pharisees because they challenge the, the status quo. So I'm not sure how to define this game anymore. All I know is that it's not, it's not for us. Yeah. It's, it's never been for us. I had a friend who she, she told me this years ago, and I'm always reminded of it. She goes, they don't know what to do with you because you, you, don't, you basically push against the status quo. And so every time I, I feel that friction, I just think about that. Like, you're right. Like, it's. It's not about me though, it's about the system. And to that, 
we do need to have community and people to survive this game, right? Whatever the game may be, um, to keep us going another day. What is a scholar homie to you? A scholar homie, wow. I was asked the other day too, a similar question about a barrio, a, a barrio scholar. And I kept bringing up this idea of allianceship, using that platform of privilege to help disenfranchised communities. So a, 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 a hood scholar is a person that understands what marginality works, understands the struggles of different marginalized groups, not just um, unidimensional perspectives, but looking at intersectional ones as well. A butter scholar um, may come from the neighborhood or may not even come from the neighborhood, but they could imagine, they could literally empathize, they could put themselves in the shoes of undocumented students. Right, they could put themselves in the shoes of women, not seeing speaking from, but understand what that struggle is like. Put yourself in that position where you completely honor the voices that have been denied to us, where you believe in hope, you believe in transformation, where you see a, an oppositional world where different worlds could exist. As a, as, a, as a, the way I think of it is, I think of myself as a CSU professor, right? But that has an embodiment that's formerly incarcerated, that's formerly undocumented, grew up in the working class community of Boyle Heights, poor, very, very poor, and um, not having access to resources like other people. So as a hood scholar, you wanna reach out to people that come from those backgrounds because on some level you understand and even if you don't understand you're going to learn to understand you're not going to speak for the community but you're going to make your presence available for anybody that needs you even at the consequence of even you know like i've had those death threats i told you about like that's going to happen sometimes to some people but no matter what that doesn't stop you from loving the community you still embrace this in like catch love this in like tradition where your community is your other me. And so for me, uh, a barrio scholar is a person that is always working alongside the margins to find talent, to find hope, inspiration, transformation, you know? So to me, that's what a barrio scholar is, a person that uses that imagination to promote change, to challenge um, those macro and micro uh, aggressions and to use some form of liberation or some form of uh, transformation to remind people that they do carry meaning. So we're always engaged in those projects, right? Where you have that one quiet student, but you don't know that that one quiet student is really engaged in the class, but yet they have life happening. And how do you connect with that student when you understand that what they're going through is difficult. You're not gonna force people to tell you what they're going through, but you're at least gonna be that ally. So when they're ready to meet somebody, either you could honor that or recommend somebody, but you're always looking for mobilizing resources, right? To 
make sense of the world for people, right? Some of us imagine we don't belong in higher ed. We don't belong in our communities. Oh, our communities are getting massively gentrified. Like we're still like there as 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 as, as that that kernel of hope for the community, for the students, for people we come in contact with. You know, today, um, as I'm talking about this, I think about my former mentor who just passed away, Reginald Daniel. He was an amazing scholar at UC Santa Barbara and he always talked about multiracial identities and the importance of honoring those voices because nobody talks about being marginalized as a multiracial person. And so I think a lot about how he would empower me when I felt like dropping out of grad school, right? And he reminded me exactly of who I want to be when I become faculty one day. A person that doesn't give up on the student, a person that reminds them that you don't have to compromise who you are so other people like you speak the way you speak. Don't try to sound like a, a dictionary, like just be yourself and navigate those worlds so that people are forced to understand you on your condition, not just on theirs, you know? So I just wanted to take a moment and honor that person because I just learned of his passing and uh, he was definitely a Barrio scholar who never grew up hood, but yet he understood it. Thank you. I just wanted to give a moment of silence for him because I know you just learned of that. Okay. And I appreciate your words and I'm so inspired. And especially with just be yourself, right? Because I think it, as we navigate academia, we, we, we've gone through the, the trenches, so to speak. And it's, I think it's easier to, to stop code switching at some point, right? Or to, to even continue to code switch and to just become part of the system. Um, and so to hold on to that is so, and to hold on to your core, um, I think is, I think a decision you gotta make, right? Like, am I gonna conform and assimilate or am I gonna continue showing up who I am? And that's a, I feel like for me, it's a constant, battle right like being very um mindful like no this is the space i'm going to show up and this is how i'm choosing to dress in the moment because it's going to speak volumes and so part of that and, and even with the podcast is i, I wanted to share um, we're going to transition a little bit but part of that is to humanize us right um humanize us as, as scholars and as people and so um i want to get into the part of where I'm asking about fun, fun things that we, we may not know about each other, but that again, we are humans and we, we have these, you know, we, we're multidimensional people. Um, so with that, I would like to ask you some, some fun questions, this or that, and you can explain or, or tell me why you, you pick those. But looking at the figures you have on, on your wall, I'll start with Tupac or Nipsey Hussle? Nipsey Hussle. Oh, nice. Okay. Oldies or 90s rap? Oldies. Love it. Pozole or menudo? Menudo. Okay. Lowrider trucks or lowrider bikes? Lowrider trucks. I'm more into the 65 Impalas. That's what I drive. Okay, okay. Nice. Um, and 
I, I I'm asking this one because of the, the the positionality that you're currently the space that you're currently in. But I see the hat, Dodgers or Padres. Híjoles, Dodgers. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, thank you so much. Are there any last words for the people that are listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have a question for you. Then I'll yes. I'll, I'll end up with a statement. So okay. since you asked me those questions, uh-huh. In and Out Burger or What a Burger? Oh, In and Out all day, all day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, because there's yes. that big debate, right? So, okay, yeah. right on. Yeah, for me, there's no debate. Uh, we actually had um, In-N-Out last weekend because there's there's one in San Antonio about three hours north. Oh, so right. whenever we are in San Antonio, my daughter immediately needs her In-N-Out. Like, don't, I will have to get her, if we're going to go to a restaurant, I will have to sneak it in because my kid's not eating anything but an In-N-Out burger. <laughs> So definitely in and out. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I just want to say that um, I value the work that you're doing on this. It's very important. Even though we are going to confront friends and frenemies in the process, you know, it's all it's all with love. I'm coming from a place of love. I'm not trying to demonize all people that's not the point here i have allies that are not from my community that i really love they 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 are allies that get it and they work with alongside us so i want to remind the audience that we have some cool allies everywhere that are outside of the community who didn't grow barrio didn't grow up but but um i'm always thinking about asada shakur when i'm navigating space and I love how she says, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and protect one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. And I stand by the mantra in everything that I do until the day I die, until the day where, you know, there's a moment of silence in my honor. I am going to continue to put up a good fight. And I'm going to continue to mentor people, whether uh, they like me or not. I'm still putting myself out there. No one's going to silence me. No one's going to keep me in my place. And I honor anybody that's in struggle. I'm in solidarity with you. And so it's all about our liberation, working together and construct one another to promote hope and inspiration. So with that said, I, I just want to say thank you so much. Y, uh, con mucho respeto, you know, in la catch love everywhere we go. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. <laughs>